yeah, I think that's pretty good. Um, I was going to try and mine more quotes uh, in response to Gramsci and Althusser, but honestly, the state of anarchist theory post like 1920 is so dismal that there's really not much uh, that isn't already being said by Gramsci and Althusser. And those are also two people that I really admire anyway. So yeah. I think that would be a good point to dovetail everything back in. And then if I want to, you know bring up some of the lost potentials of more horizontalist or like what I would call like reflexive forms of governance. Like we might've seen in Chile, if they hadn't been cooed by the U S government, then that might be more the direction I'll take in that, uh, in that section. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly that your feelings about the, that, you know, anarchist theory is kind of how I feel about like Western Marxist theory, basically post Althusser when everything started to transition into the post-structuralist phase. Right. Like there's, there's good stuff in there. Like I like some stuff from, you know, like Frederick Jameson, which you helped introduce me to, but like there's so much of the stuff in there that just gets, I think they went way too far on. We have to deconstruct everything and not actually hold any opinions it's like how are you going to build anything off of this well that's that's why i like like as far as the post-structuralists go that's why i like jameson because he critiques modernity and post-modernity he critiques structuralism and post-structuralism like he's a very holistic ecumenical kind of thinker and then that's why i also like post-structuralism and reform and revert to monkey at the same time (laughs) but that's also why i like people like derrida because like Unlike Foucault, unlike Deleuze, unlike, um, you know, even Simon Don to some degree, Derrida went for it. He was like, fuck it. Post-structuralism. I'll make post-structuralism look structuralist. And that <laughs> I at least have, like, some respect for that he, like, went for it with that level of single-minded intensity. I've never cared for Foucault. Uh, I especially don't care for people influenced by Foucault, such as Agamben, <laughs> yeah. who I hate with a passion. Um, or your co-host, Lena. Yeah. <laughs> i actually am I just, the only one that that is i think well dan have you read foucault no he's on my shelf but okay I so i'm the only him. one who's read foucault that's 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 fine it, it's I, not that no, big yeah. of a deal I know about I've, Foucault from being in philosophy circles, but I have never actually picked up. I know your your grandpa told me to read Birth of the Clinic, and at some point I will. It sounds good, and it's also like that's what okay. Like I have to give Foucault credit. It seems like his historiographies and his genealogies are quite good, but I don't like his cultural commentary as such. Yeah. Like I I don't think that's as good. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of. I mean, this again. It, it's it's purely speculative because I haven't read him, but it's because right. it's I've kind of like through osmosis picked up on some of what his ideas are through, you know, reading like Althusser, who was one of well, his teachers. Well, you're, you're, you're like me, Dan, right? Like there's just a Foucault-shaped hole in your yeah. understanding, right? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's like I've gotten ideas of what he's talking about from all these other places. And I know one of the things from, from reading about just that scene in, in French philosophy in the 60s and 70s, it it really seems like he understandably had a you know pretty strong reaction to the the PCF's mistreatment of him and other uh, gay men who had previously you know been trying to be members of the communist party which is right. a you know that's fucked totally up totally reasonable yeah, yeah that so is that's totally, bad yeah totally understandable to be like mad at them for being that shitty that totally justified but then like it seems like he took that and was just like and therefore everything they've said is wrong <laughs> 
And it's like, well, yeah. I well, I, I, I think that well, the way that I see it, because a lot, I mean, I know that the, I don't know as much about his stance on sexuality, which I know is like 50% of Foucault. I know a lot more about his analysis on, on well, basically Discipline and Punish. That book is something sure, that right. I've, I've, I've read twice. And and so I, I find that a lot of that actually draws back to Althusser's like uh, state state apparatuses um, mm-hmm. and how th- yeah. it's really almost like a, a refined analysis of one particular version of it in the way that like the repressive state necessarily creates these carceral institutions in order to you know do that repression and how they do extend down into education and and other sorts of of you know state structures that are created though i i definitely think that that there's this there's this kind of um what do you call it uh i don't want to i don't want to you've gone too far almost in the in the idea that like even if it's like because we're going to get into the idea of of like the Marxist-Leninist con- conception of the state and abolition of the state with the mm-hmm. abolition of class tied together, and how uh, I I still am a little uh, not all, all the way on that exact point, but but to sure. say that like once once that has happened, then uh, that like education systems still have these ideological bents to them, which mm-hmm. then also then have a similar like a vague notion of that kind of carceral society and and and, and yeah. uh, is it any and, wonder that schools resemble barracks which resemble <laughs> prisons which resemble yeah right <laughs> yeah right and it, and it always reminds me of my when because i was i was really a lot more into it probably a, a year ago and when i was talking about it uh in a in a random discord and someone was like uh, hey Lena, is uh this is this conversation a prison? And I immediately <laughs> responded with, "It's now starting to feel like one after that." Question. <laughs> Hell yeah! Too that's good. The perfect response. <laughs> I mean, uh, I've as far as discipline and punish goes, I understand. I haven't read it, but I understand that that is like widely regarded as his best book. Like it seems influential among everybody, Marxists, anarchists, even yeah. some liberals. Um, because it's like a perfect encapsulation of what like French and in general Western liberalism was doing at that time and is still doing right. in many different ways today. But yeah, um, it's also a history of the way and ways in which uh, like disciplinary actions have come down and and the way that like we've gotten away from things like the guillotine as a practice right. of public, uh, you know, like. Even even as a a way of t- holding the the ruling class accountable, um, how that's you know we we love to to joke about guillotining the rich though that is not actually really our right. plan. Well, uh, and like right. somebody yeah. somebody doesn't <laughs> have to be perfect for for you to appreciate like the really salient and sensible bits of their theory. Like I love Jacques Lacan, but he was a dick to the student revolutionaries who were trying to organize. He told them like yeah. you want a master and you will have one. Like, that's a very rude thing to say to revolutionaries. Yeah. Like, uh, and then, like, you know, uh, Foucault, like, you know, for his failings, he had, he tried to join the Communist Party. Like, obviously, at certain points along the way, he was like, I know that there's a right thing to do here. And as much as, like, I detest Sartre for... I, I think he was completely wrong in his falling out with Camus. Politically, there's some gray area, but, like, philosophically, epistemologically, I'm firmly on Camus' side. But I have to give it up for Sartre. Like he went out into the streets and marched with the students. Yeah. Camus went and like fucked off and played soccer. 
Like, it's not the yeah. same thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm really not a fan of existentialism myself. <laughs> I mean, existentialism I think- has a lot to offer, but I really feel like it. it's one of the only things that, like, uh, the American Philosophical Academy has gotten right, which is that f- existentialism is a great way to get into philosophy, not necessarily a great system for being a systematic thinker or developing a project. It, I guess, and m- maybe my 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 distaste for it is primarily because of Camus, but it's it's always just seemed to me as a as a very bourgeois in an extremely French way. Yeah, uh, sure. Form of of nihilism. I know it's not exactly nihilism, but it seems like a very bourgeois type of nihilism to justify fucking off and playing soccer while other people are, you know, trying right. to yeah. build a revolution. Well, but th- right. there's also a portion of this that I think is really uh interesting, which is that like, you know, Sartre for all of his political successes, he came from a bourgeois or at oh, least absolutely. middle yeah. class background. He mm-hmm. he came up in the academy. He was given lots of opportunities. Camus was a poor dude from Algeria who was barely admitted to the academy in the first place. And maybe in in kind of the same way I'm sympathetic to Foucault for for rejecting the PFC because they rejected him because he was gay, I'm sympathetic to Camus in that he felt like maybe the the bourgeois French Marxists, which many of them were, were oh, not like really engaging with the material conditions of the working and oppressed classes in the extended um, Francophone empire, yeah, you know, I or th- Francophone th- world. I think on on, on that thought, I, I want to say one thing about Foucault before we actually do the intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but um, I think that we, you were mentioning that there's a lot of liberals that even draw from Foucault, and that, and mm-hmm. how I see that as a problem is probably because of that that like um, the LGBT like part of what uh, Foucault is about, and how like liberals on like the LGBT liberation kind of side, even if they are liberal and they don't actually have a real purpose, to- like have a real direction towards real liberation, they uh, find that Foucault is a really great author because of that. And I think that that's a problem. I think that the reason, like to to just identify with someone because they are LGBT, I, I think is uh, is reductionist. And I, I, that, I absolutely, it's, it's I mean, silly. it it it's the same kind of like liberal identity brain that gets you thinking yep. like, oh, I should make a Chase Bank account because Chase Bank had yeah. a commercial that showed two men getting married or whatever. And it's like, no, like you want to go support. Yeah you know lgbt community there's a million ways to do it making a chase bank account is not it like (laughs) you know like if if that commercial got you thinking about what you could do to help fine and good but like don't let it be a commercial for chase bank um and that's just an example that i'm bringing up because i saw a chase bank commercial that was vaguely in that in that vein (laughs) recently yeah uh and and that is a huge problem is uh people like to to cherry pick whichever elements are relevant to them and kind of like dust that shit off yep and you see that with Foucault. I mean, he's one of the most cherry-picked thinkers um, next to Nietzsche. And, of course, he took a big influence from Nietzsche. Oh, yeah. It feels we like... Could, the, we could get a little mo- bit... Because I, I, every person I've ever met that loves Nietzsche is un- insufferable and, and, yeah. is bad, and is bad <laughs> well, at philosophy. Pe- people who like Nietzsche for, like, the right reasons aren't usually talking about Nietzsche. They're usually talking about some other philosopher that Nietzsche went on to influence. Right. And then if they are talking about Nietzsche, they're also talking about Spinoza. They're also talking about other vitalists and people from the 
traditions that are right. next to and adjacent to vitalism. And I think so also these that, are not, that raise, this is not really the topic of today's episode. This is not today's topic, but I do want to bring something up really quick before we move on, which is that I think a big part of the reason that thinkers like Foucault, uh, Deleuze and Guattari, and even Derrida to a certain extent uh, made such great gains in, in their works being read versus other contemporary philosophers is because they made one critical correct decision, which was to experiment with language and not in an academic way where you're constantly stacking things up and using more neologisms and using more invented terms and making things too complicated to understand. Like Foucault wrote books that anybody can read. Deleuze and Guattari wrote books that anybody can read. And that is like like, crazy important. Like I love Althusser, but he absolutely does that. He gets way too wrapped (laughs) up in language sometimes. All right. Yeah. I mean, there's two kinds of French. There are two kinds of French authors, right? everybody we're going to be discussing something that is not really relevant to what we were just talking about at all we're going to be talking about the nature of the state and as leftists as anti-capitalists as uh you know uh, people who are invested yeah labor people if you're invested in a progressive or or a revolutionary struggle this is something that you're going to bump up against eventually and since we have a pretty good spread uh, uh among the hosts on this show of marxist through anarchist through other miscellaneous kind of tendencies we thought that for an overtime episode it would be a good idea to just kind of hash it out for you and see what we all see what we all think yeah like because when we're doing the show regularly like We'll talk about, you know, the state and make references to it. I, I certainly, you know, will make references to structures and apparatuses and, and different mm-hmm. terminology that I'll pull from the, the theory that has uh, really informed my personal understanding of this issue. But, you know, it, it's not really a good spot on the show to, to dig into the, the specifics of where that's coming from. Uh, and, and we figured it would be a good idea to actually, you know, for, for an overtime episode to to try and get into that and and really dig into what we're talking about when we make those references to the state and how our understandings of what the state is uh, differ from the traditional definition that you get, you know, just from standard liberal United States American society, what they teach you in in school. It's the government. And as soon as public private partnerships come into play, that's (laughs) that's abolishing the state. Right. I thought the the state was a bald (laughs) eagle and it had to be preserved because it was the last one. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, since like since especially since like the Reagan era, you just get this the state is the government and that's and when the government is doing anything except war and beating protesters, that's bad. Yeah. Well, and uh, also if you're an American, which all of the hosts are, uh you're in a country where the a common delineation of what your politics are, even within the liberalism of this nation, is determined by whether you think the state should be more or less active in intervening in markets or intervening in right. people's lives. Right. And, and how and, just misleading that notion is. Yeah. Completely yeah. irrelevant both 
internally to the liberal system of the United States, and when you get outside of it and look at it from an anti-capitalist perspective, you realize how doubly insane it is that like we have an entire political party in this country called the Libertarians. Right. Uh, and right. I, I think this is going to be especially exciting for me because I, you know, I have a habit of sitting in Discord voice chats and and talking politics, and I've come up with a couple points that I think that are uh, kind of illuminating that I've managed to to tell ten people, and and hopefully will. <laughs> increase that number to 50 uh thank thank you all for being patrons yeah thank you so much (laughs) yeah Um, absolutely yeah so i think dan was going to start us off with just like the general overview of how our original boys our ogs marx Engels, and lennon have uh taken a a gander at the state yeah so like obviously like i'm a marxist leninist so i have what is i would think probably a pretty traditionalist understanding of the state from the Marxist-Leninist perspective. I draw primarily on Marxist-Leninist thinkers. And obviously, it's in the name. The the, the first, uh, you know, big guys involved in that are Marx and Lenin. But also, this is a place where, because, you know, people will see Marx always paired up with Engels. And, and I think sometimes people wonder why that is if they've only read you know the manifesto or maybe selections from from capital uh, but the definition of the state is is a spot where Engels really helped flesh out marx's theoretical work and and added his own materialist understanding and so to to just jump in like the way i feel that we're normally told what the state is uh, the definition that we're given in school the the way that the framework is discussed on the media is that the state is synonymous basically with the government, uh, the, right. anything that is considered a public institution. So, you know, the Congress, your state legislature, the police, the army, firefighters, and to a certain extent, even, you know, like maybe even school boards, that sort of thing. And that, right. to it, that is the state. And then everything else is private, free enterprise that is great and amazing. Free, free from ideology. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> Completely neutral. There's there's no politics involved if it's a private institution. Right. Uh, yeah. So non-governmental organizations have never been ideologically charged. <laughs> yeah, right? no, absolutely never. I, I'm really excited to get to that point, but I feel like that's going to be a little bit closer to once we get to, to Gramsci and, and Althusser. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I can go off about NGOs for a while. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but so that definition is a really idealistic one it's one that has a a basis of what's the state and what isn't that's not based in like any material difference it's it's based in just an ideological conception and what the core of really what marx was developing as as marxism you know um obviously we talk about his analysis of capitalism but a core of his method is the development of historical materialism which is you know looking at history through the lens of economics through the lens of production basically how do the people in different forms of society manage to you know feed themselves produce clothing shelter all the things that people need to survive and you know reproduce society and so what they're saying is that previous philosophy pre- previous uh, political economy has looked at this stuff from like these ideas about, oh, society develops from, like, Christianity, or it develops from the morals of a ruling class. Like, it, it, it's these, these the, basically hand, the great God handed the great us the state theory. from down on high, right? Right, right. <laughs> right. 
Uh, and so when they started to look at what is the state, they wanted to take a look at it from the historical materialist perspective. And so that led them to really like, dig into all, going all the way back to the origins of humanity and look at how did the state arise, where did it come from, what produced it. And there's a couple specific texts that from Marx and Engels that really get into that. And that's, for Marx, is primarily the civil war in France, where he's talking about the, the development of French society from feudalism up through the, the developments that had happened you know, more recently in his life, the, the French Revolution, then the, the, Democra the, um, the democratic revolutions across Europe in 1848, ultimately leading to the Paris Commune. And so he and Engels basically developed this formulation that the state is something that isn't something that's always existed because that's another key component of the liberal mm -hmm. idealistic understanding is that we're basically taught every society has a state even if the state form is different and you have to have a state for society to exist because there's another conception of you know the the idealist concept of people is that you know right. people are inherently greedy and will inherently fight amongst each other the 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 right. false uh ideas that are thrown around with things like the the logical fallacy of the tragedy of the commons which is complete nonsense right well and uh there's there's also like a misunderstanding that like um uh states are just things that arise when human beings need to get along and not right. like something that it, it emerges out of like a exploitative or an economic relationship like i think in a, a lot right. of uh, anthropology historical anthropologists will tell you like nothing resembling what we consider a state like existed before agriculture. Like there right. was no reason right. for it. That, right. We need to have an it, it, like imposed structure upon us in order to agree. And that, that humans inherently don't agree on everything. Right. And they need to have that, that kind of repressive structure in order to uh, actually function in any way, which uh, like Dan mentioned with the, the, the false notion of the tragedy of the commons is absolutely ridiculous. Right. And so when ex exactly what you're saying, when they started to dig into, you know, the anthropological history of the development of human societies, they came to that conclusion that the state has not always existed and that the state really came about as a method of determining how you would distribute surplus. Once people developed agriculture, you know, you started to develop uh, herding societies instead of just like hunter-gatherer societies, societies primarily based on fishing, which, which tended to be much more communal, where everyone, like the community, worked together to procure food, to provide housing, and these things were all held in common. And then as agriculture and, and more combination of pastoral and sedentary life developed, there started to develop the productive capacity to produce more food and, and more other goods as, as, as more work diversified than the individual or even the necessary family ne you know, needs at one time. So you have extra to store. And there became the question of how do you distribute that? And that's where you start to break things into classes and re mm -hmm. uh, result in class antagonisms. And so there's a, there's a quote here from... Angles that I want to use, uh, these quotes from Angles are primarily, they're all from uh, Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Um, and so his quote here is, The state is, therefore, by no means a power forced on society from without. Just as little is it the reality of the ethical idea, the image and reality of reason, as Hegel maintains. Rather, it is a product of society at a certain stage of development. It is the admission that this society has become entangled in an insoluble contradiction with itself. 
that it has split into irreconcilable antagonisms, which it is powerless to dispel. But in order that these antagonisms, these classes with conflicting economic interests, might not consume themselves in society in fruitless struggle, it became necessary to have a power seemingly standing above society that would alleviate the conflict and keep it within the bounds of order. And this power arisen out of society by placing itself above it and alienating itself more and more from it is the state. Yes. And, and so that's really the, the core of the historical materialist viewpoint of the origin of the state. That state, the state does not arise in you know, the very first human communities when humans started you know, evolving to walk upright. It's like the first you know, small communities of hunters and gatherers, they did not need a state. They did, it was, they did not need this exterior organization to determine how resources would be shared because everybody needed to work every day to produce the necessities of life. And, and if people didn't work together and share those things communally, the, the community would not survive. Right. Yeah, it's interesting how he at the beginning he starts by like uh, with a sly BTFO to Hegel's uh, Elements of the Philosophy of Right, his last and most controversial book where he did some incredibly undialectical things in order to justify the Prussian state of the time. And then in the rest of the paragraph goes ahead and uses Hegel's own dialectical method to like basically tear down Hegel's own assertions. It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, and so... One of the things that I, I will just make a point here on origin of the family, private property in the state. I have a lot of criti- criticisms of this book as a whole. I, mm-hmm. um, I, I only recently read it, um, but there's his method, the historical materialist method, which he uses throughout this, I think is incredibly important and, and very valid. It, the, the problem with the book as a whole is that he's ba- a lot of it is basically an anthropological study based on data that was not he he was getting bad inputs basically from right. the anthropological data he had at the time a lot of which was coming from missionaries and people with very reactionary eurocentric views so there's a lot of really outdated stuff in there but his methodology is i mean pr- i think relatively self-evident when yeah. you when you start reading more history and so uh, it's it's great to see it applied in that general sense. And then what I would recommend to folks, if they do want to check out that book is additionally check out uh, Caliban and the witch by Silvia Federici, who has updated basically taking his same methodology, but applying it to more modern updated, actual feminist analysis and, and, and anthropological information that isn't, you know, shot through with all these Eurocentric ideas. Yeah, because, you know, it's the same thing as any other system. Garbage in, garbage out. It doesn't matter how good your system is, yeah. Yeah, one thing that I do like about this, though, uh, is the the idea that the study of the family uh, kind of... I mean, there is definitely studies of the family before this, but this is kind of one of the early uh, analyses of how the family structure was, like, redesigned to fulfill capitalist needs and how um, historically, like if you look at the way that families are now in single family homes and, and other sorts of um, apparatuses like that, those are, those are also ideological structures that are not like the inherent way that people organize. I mean, uh, multi-generational family homes are incredibly popular in places outside of the West and in some places, even in, in Europe and slightly, slightly Western society. But uh, I, 
I think that it's also important to realize that a lot of structures that we have in our day-to-day goings-on are necessarily part of the state apparatus that is upholding capitalism. Yeah, it's 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 just a bit more nuanced than just like like oh you have a you have parents or you have guardians and those are the people that you care about but more so that now what that is is that's supposed to be the final safety net or the, actually not the final this the core safety net uh to to not do communism and that your family is supposed to be the only structure in which supports you though i'm i'm getting a little bit away from the 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 structure of the state i guess uh, i still kind of well, think it is though it's it's, it's interesting cuz what angles is doing here in 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 uh making the most of his his dialectical materialist method in looking at the structural reasons for why the different patterns have emerged is in some ways reminiscent of almost like a proto psychoanalytic approach which is to say like you know these structures don't just reproduce themselves on like a purely economic level there is also this ideological superstructural force that is regulating and tethering the development of these different family work you know, and social values that go along with capitalism and develop into liberalism. Right. And one thing I, I didn't mention, which I just want to mention real quick about the, the family structure is that you know, also the family structure is not uh, is not inherently biological in the way that the, the capitalist structure um, has generally defined it. I, I think that we can all know, especially people on the left or in especially if you're uh, in kind of in queer communities, you find that family is a, a lot more expansive than just the people who you were you know the household that you were born into or whatever it, there's there's a lot more to it than than that so uh, i just wanted to make sure to make that point uh, as well yeah well and there's a history of class relations with regard to familial ties too like they'll bring in uh people will consider maids and butlers and other servants part of their extended family and there was always like a whole series of connotations that came along with that and that kind of like uh, uh, hierarchical, like more directly class-based, like familial bond got translated into industrial yeah. society as well. But this is, continues that to cla- veer away from talking about that, the state. That class-based structure that that perpetuates the capitalist family structure. Yeah, you can invite someone into your family, but only if you're, you know, willing to to do something economically or or whatever, you know, to be there their their support structure. But then also through the class relations uh, can. Also also be highly exploitative you know yeah because like uh, one of the core parts of his analysis of the family and how it relates to the state is that uh, uh, instead of looking at it the way that you know is traditionally thrown down from a lot of you know older analysis and especially european analysis where it talks about the family as it does many other institutions as it has always existed exactly this way and it just happens that our definition happens to line up with uh, Christian morality that reinforces property <laughs> relations. And it's not that these forms have changed because of the change in those property relations. And so he's really trying to turn that, you know, it, in a, in a very Hegelian manner, trying to turn that idealistic analysis, which is, you know, clearly like, even if you don't necessarily agree with a lot of his other stuff, the idea that the family has existed in this, the, the you know, the, the 1950s nuclear family concept forever, mm-hmm. just 
doesn't make any sense like well, it, everything changes <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's this ideological like reproduction that we do in the united states to maintain that nuclear family image right. and i promised myself i was i actually when i was doing my notes for this i looked at a bunch of sterner stuff and i was like i <laughs> i should talk about him at some point but a lot of this is garbage like there's there's great points surrounded by garbage and in, in sterner but there is like one thing that I think is worth noting is when he talks about enforcers of the state, he invariably mentions clergy, usually first. He doesn't mention police. He doesn't mention armies. He mentions clergy. And I, I really think that like what you were talking about, the alignment, uh, the subtle alignment of Christian morality and property relations with the state's ideological reproduction uh, of liberalism or of monarchism or whatever it might be uh, is is really really noteworthy and it's important that people uh, remember that modern capitalism as much as industrial capitalism during Marx's day is theologically informed as much as it is economically informed at many points along the way yeah and so Engels analysis in, in, in that text he he starts from like you're saying basically the the origins of agriculture which which start leading to the creation of surplus which then starts to generate class antagonisms which leads to the development of the state in order right. to uh, be able to maintain society with those existing contradictions and so he he looks at it from the the very origins and, and running through the a somewhat stagist conception of starting with slave society where you had a ruling class of slave owners and a, and a class of ruled over slaves, right. uh, largely looking at, you know, Greek society, Roman society. And then he transitions into the feudal state looking at basically you have, you know, your ruling class of your giant landlords uh, and then your lower class of serfs and, you know, the, the small class that then develops into the, a larger one, you have a mercantile class, and then we see the transition from feudalism into capitalism. And you, you then have the clash between the bourgeoisie and the aristocracy in the transition from feudalism being in dominance to capitalism being in dominance. And right. Marx specifically gets into that in uh, the Civil War in France when he says this, originating from the Middle Ages, there developed in the 19th century the centralized state power with its ubiquitous organs of standing army, p police, bureaucracy, clergy, mm -hmm. and judicature. With the development of class antagonisms between capital and labor, state power assumed more and more the character of a public force organized for the suppression of the working class, of a machine of class rule. After every revolution, which marks an advance in the class struggle, the purely coercive character of the state power stands out in bolder and bolder relief. After the revolution of 1848-49, state power became the national war instruments of capital against labor. Oh, where have we seen that today, where surplus <laughs> war funds now become suppression of labor funds and resources uh, in the incredibly heavily armed and riot-ready police we have across this country? You know, like. Yeah, and, and Engels really like carries that on in, in, in this next quote where he, he talks about it, referring to the public power of the state, grows stronger, however, in proportion as class antagonisms within the state become more acute and as adjacent states become larger and more populous. We have only to look at our present day Europe, and he's speaking in uh, the eight, late 1880s at this point, where class struggle and rivalry and conquest have tuned up the public power to such a pitch that it threatens to swallow the whole of society and even the state. And so this re that really hits at the core 
Marxist conception of what the state is, which is that the state is not just, you know, any government body that organizes anything in society. The state is very specifically defined. It is the organ of class rule. It is how whoever the ruling class is and under slavery it was slave owners under feudalism it's the feudal lords and the king and under uh capitalism it's the bourgeoisie and the state is the organ by which that ruling class imposes its rule over the rest of society and maintains mm-hmm. its dominance and attempts to reproduce those relations that keep it in dominance. So uh, basically, you know, the the feudal state was designed in such a way as to keep the serfs from moving around and and moving into the towns and figuring out that maybe being tied to the land and having to give all, almost all of your shit to the lord is not a great idea to run society. Right. And and so in in the same way that yet you participate in society. the capitalist state structure does this. <laughs> Curious, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Sorry, I just saw I saw that one line up right there. <laughs> no, but the no, you're right though because it's like this is the thing with uh with this definition, this materialist definition is that it's not that the state is some amorphous whenever the government does stuff. It the term state in in, in the Marxist understanding is specifically how one class imposes its role on the other, which is why then the concept of a proletarian state, a worker state from the Marxist perception is the idea of finally for the first time since uh, what was originally called primitive communism, but is now because of the unfortunate, you know, the kind of shitty semi-racist origins of that term. Uh, I, I've seen um, people more using the term primary communism, like the original form of communism that right. existed prior to class society, that that society did not have a state. And, Therefore, when you understand that, that there have existed human societies without a state, that, that just completely blows through the liberal idealist conception that the only way to function in a society is with a state, that a state must always exist. Right, that it, automatically must arises. Always, right, yeah. that there must always be classes, there must always be these divisions, and that they are permanent, and there's no way to get around them. And so just by looking at the, taking this historical materialist analysis and showing that, hey, there have been societies, and, and Engels points specifically to indigenous societies uh, in the Western Hemisphere, he specifically looks at the Iroquois Confederacy. And again, drawing on incomplete, uh, rather paternalistic information that it sometimes doesn't turn out to be the, the greatest analysis, but it still provides that critical piece of understanding that the state and class society as a whole it is not something that's always existed and that leads into this last quote that i have from Engels from origin of the family private property and state which is the state then has not existed from all eternity there have been societies that did without it that had no idea of the state and state power at a certain stage of economic development, which was necessarily bound up with the split of society into classes, the state became a necessity owing to this split. We are now rapidly approaching a stage in the development of production at which the existence of these classes not only will have ceased to be a necessity, but will become a positive hindrance to production. They will fall as they arose at an earlier stage. Along with them, the state will inevitably fall. Society, which will reorganize production on the basis of a free and equal association of the producers, will put the whole machinery of state where it will then belong, into a museum of antiquities by the side of the spinning wheel and the bronze axe. 
Yeah, yeah, I mean that sounds badass. Powerful. Oh, yeah. Almost sounds even kind of anarchistic. I mean, yeah, that's and this what, is I was the- just thinking. I was like, there's I, I wanted to also bring up just like the concept that once we get up to to, to Gramsci and, and Althusay, how uh I feel like at certain points there is a little bit of a you know, just abolishing class is not necessarily abolishing the state, though I do really love this as as a starting point. It was one of the reasons why I still have some some anarchist leanings, because I do think that once we reach communism there is still a little bit of, of state apparatus to get rid of, but the that we're not we don't we're not there in the conversation. I mean, Engels Engels always struck <laughs> me as being a little bit more open to the idea that eventually, like that, we weren't going to have to go through a lot of stages to get to the abolition of the state or to like achieve some kind of like real progress towards a classless society. Whereas I think in, in his way, Marx was a little bit more adamant that like you had to do a, to do B, to do C, to do D. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is just really great. And I think that this is something that, uh, a lot of anarchists have unfortunately failed to pick up on is that there are, there are Marxist answers for like, how do we get rid of the state right there in Engels where he makes a, a lot of excellent points right in a row that like, you know, these, these states are a piece of technology in essence like they're as or um, they're a, they're a technological system by which we necessarily had to arrange ourselves at one point in history to progress develop technologically in terms of taking care of each other but like and living in the modern day you should know that like we already are past the point where they're necessary like we produce an incredible amount of shit that never makes it to a human being. And we let an incredible amount of human beings never receive the shit they need. So, um, you should be feeling this passage from angles, I think quite acutely, uh, especially if you live in a place in the Imperial core, like the United States. Yeah. Like this is one of the things that I always like bring up with anarchists who I think, you know, maybe haven't done as much of the reading (laughs) Uh, just to (laughs) point out that it's like, I understand why there's the perception that Leninists like have no intention of abolishing the state or don't want to, or think the state is a good thing, but it's like, uh, well, (laughs) I'm not defending him, but we wasn't wasn't a Leninist. Well, (laughs) don't tell that. Don't tell the trots that. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean like, no, because the thing is that like the conception, the difference and we'll, you know, we're going to, I'm kind of get jumping into the next section, but like the difference there is really the conception of how do you get from capitalism to a post-class sure. post-state society? And, and that's one of the things that later theorists, I, I believe, found a little bit wanting from what they'd been able to get from specifically Marx and Engels, because Marx and Engels were primarily focused on, you know, the development of the historical and dialectical materialist method of mm-hmm. taking a look at you know past societies and looking at the theoretical understanding of where we needed to go but and while they were you no know, happy to make these like very broad predictions with no timeline on them of yes we can understand that once the you know mode of production that we're in now capitalism being obviously globally dominant once that has exhausted its productive capacity, it becomes a fetter 
on right. the further development of production. And we and just what you were saying is a perfect example of that. Like when we see, you know, Amazon destroying millions of items because it's there's, you know, some recall or something, or it's just cheaper to destroy them than it is to keep them on a shelf. Mm-hmm. And and you see, you know, like whenever we have crises of agricultural overproduction, you'll see in order to keep prices from plummeting through the floor, you'll see like, you know, people may be going hungry while there's potatoes being plowed under in the fields and things like that because you have a system that is fundamentally reached. It's gone beyond the point at which capitalist race, relations of production can be a progressive force long overdue now. We've long passed that point and have become uh, something that's holding back society. Oh, yeah. And, but that all those predictions and understanding aside, they were a bit less specific on, okay, we understand we need a communist society. We definitely want to get there. We need a socialist revolution. But how specifically are we going to do that? Because they, they looked at the, their, their big example in their lifetime was the Paris Commune. And that right. was, you know, one of the things that, that prompted the, the writing of the, the Civil War in France and a revision to the, the Communist Manifesto. And it was, you know, one of the biggest events in, in Marx and Engels' lives on actually seeing this stuff carried out in practice. And so you get a discussion within their understanding of the state that leads a little bit to how you're going to get there, but it doesn't get fleshed out. And what I'm talking about there is the concepts of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and the dictatorship of the proletariat. Because, and what those term, and what they're talking about there with those terms is that when we understand that society is an organ of class rule and that therefore under capitalism, where the ruling class is the bourgeoisie, the, the owners, the employers, people who own the means of production and hire other people to labor for them in order to extract their surplus value, you know, in the form of profit, that because that state is designed specifically to keep those relations where they are, to reinforce and maintain the ruling class in the form of you know, a very tiny bourgeois minority, that functionally then the state is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. And so their prediction for, and, and then based on their analysis of the commune on how we were going to have to overcome that to try and have a state that for the first time you know, since the, the origins of the state would finally have the majority class actually yeah. in power and the ruling class being most people instead of a tiny, tiny fraction, right. is that we would have to overturn the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and replace it with the dictatorship of the proletariat. Mm-hmm. And that's where my man Lenin comes in. Right, I, if, right, right. Right, right before we move on, I'm just going to make one point real quick. Uh, just the idea of the the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie is misunderstood by people with a liberal understanding because a lot of times are we're taught that power is one guy, is that totalitarian dictator Donald Trump right. uh, or whatever, right. and and that is th- that he is the dictator, and not to to take into account all of the many dictators that exist in our society. Um, yeah, because uh, there, the there's always a class. That's why they divide it up into dictatorship of the proletariat and bourgeoisie is because there is always a class of people dictating policy, dictating the order of society. And better to have it be you know, the proletariat, the workers who are going to experience the majority of the effects of the arrangement of society than the bourgeoisie who are, you know, especially if they've been in charge already, comfortably insulated from all of that. Right. And so... 
now that you've had like in you, you, we've moved into the late eight, 1800s you've had the first example in history as as Marx and Engels said of the an attempt at building the dictatorship of the proletariat right. in the form of the Paris Commune uh, which you know they critiqued because it was put down incredibly viciously by by the French state who turned to a power they had been losing a war to in the Prussians to to basically help them save the French ruling class from the workers of Paris. And, Incredible. And so from that point forward, you had several decades of the 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 you know the socialist thinkers who would come out of the first international and, mm-hmm. and later trying to determine okay what did they do wrong how do we need to reorganize this in the future. And, and that was really what Lenin was focused on in a ton of his analysis. And, and specifically, the, the quotes that I'm going to pull from here are all from the, the State and Revolution, probably his most famous work alongside imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, which was basically Lenin's pamphlet of this is what the state is. This is why it's fucked. And this is how we're going to get rid of it. <laughs> right. And so to start with uh, his understanding of the state and then move through his discussions on how to get rid of it. Uh, I'll start with this, which is kind of a a logical conclusion from going over Marx and Engels analysis, which is the centralized state power that is peculiar to bourgeois society came into being in the period of the fall of absolutism. Two institutions most characteristic of this state machine are the bureaucracy and the standing army. In their works, Marx and Engels repeatedly show that the bourgeoisie are connected with these institutions by thousands of threads. Every worker's experience illustrates this connection in an extremely graphic and impressive manner. And I want to like kind of explain what he's saying here and why this thing is so applicable, that, that statement is so applicable right now, because you'll see our state will constantly talk about like the, our military, mm-hmm. which is a different form than the standing army was back then, but it serves the same role. It'll be talked about as a non-political organization in the same way that you'll see our you know our congress our legislature talked about as a democracy that it's expressing the will of the people but any as he says in here every worker who's worked a day in their life and seen any repression by the police machinery seen the government you know get elected by millions and millions of votes and then it doesn't matter which party's in power they're not listening to the poor. They're not listening to the majority of the people who supposedly are the ones who chose them in there. It's the policies of the ruling class are, and the policies of, you know, lower taxes and, you know, no uh, distribution of any sort of societal surplus to the poor, uh, no higher wages, you know, uh, constantly cutting labor regulations as much as possible. Housing, These are sorts of food for all. Exactly. Yeah. You, like you, you repeatedly see these polls that'll show all of these policies that are have 60, 70, 80% support across the country, and then they never get voted in. And this is what, what Lenin's talking about here, is that like e- the state will try and, and cloak its class nature in all this ideological rhetoric about how it's independent, how it's, it's expressing the will of the people, but that the experience of workers under capitalism, that oppression in the workplace and, you know, in any time that the workers attempt to organize for their own power makes it immediately clear that the state is, and always, you know, has been under capitalism specifically an organ purely to carry out the will of the ruling class. Right. Absolutely. Um, And so, yeah, uh, then he, he carries on from there. 
if the state is the product of the irreconcilability of class antagonisms, if it is a power standing above society and, quote, alienating itself more and more from it, to use these quoting angles that we just read, it is clear that the liberation of the oppressed class is impossible, not only without a revolution, but also without the destruction of the apparatus of state power, which was created by the ruling class and which is the embodiment of this alienation. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's one of the key points that we're going to end up getting to when I talk about what the anarchist thinkers are, are speaking about as well, is that the state doesn't just function as uh, a form of class antagonism, but also as part of that uh, class antagonism, especially when wielded by the bourgeoisie, it involves uh, this constant isolation and alienation where you're always placing extra middlemen, you're always placing extra boundaries between the comfortable life of the ruling class uh, or and, and between the working and peasant classes. And I also just wanted to note that it's interesting, of course, that um, Lenin is the one who developed this so much because I think Marx and Engels, of course, were trying to analyze the nascent uh, capitalism and, and the early emergent capitalist states that were coming out of the era they were living in, whereas the revolution that Lenin participated in uh, in Russia overthrew a feudal aristocracy. And right. it, like, uh, kind of skipped a step, so to speak. But I think in in doing so, proved that in all of the state iterations of class society, the through line of the way that the state operates has been consistent: one class oppressing the other class. Yeah, like the the nature of of Russia was, which was usually portrayed. The, the term what was commonly used was it was a very backwards state. Sure. At the time <laughs> yeah. Because. In 1917, whereas most of Western Europe, specifically, you know, France, England, and Germany, although mm -hmm. Germany was kind of catching up at this point, um, that those powers had been in a state where capitalism was the dominant mode of production right. for a long time. Really, the, like those revolutions of 1848 were really primarily about, you know, overthrowing the, the last real strengths of the absolutist feudal monarchies and, and transitioning Western Europe primarily into a capitalist mode. But as you were saying, most of Russia geographically and, and, and the vast majority of its population still lived under feudal relations. Like the vast mm -hmm. majority of the Russian people were still peasants. And there, there was a growing bourgeois class in the cities of, from the what capitalist industry was there but they, right. they were by no means the the primary power and that was one of the things you know that that made russia an interesting case because you had this it was already in the state of transition which made it so that you know the bourgeoisie had not quite figured out how to solidify their hold on power. Uh, and that'll really, we'll really well, yeah. get into how that, I, that happens in, in Gramsci. I mean, that's also, I mean, this also ties into kind of what I'm going to talk about the anarchists, which is like w once a state has reached a certain level of pro production or a certain like degree of a mode of production, if it is, if it is too far behind, if it is like, if holding on to feudalism when by now, you know, it would be much better served by capitalism. Sometimes that kind of potential energy or that immiseration, uh, I think Marx talked about this in, um, was it Capital or the Grundrisse where he talks about immiseration theory among the proletarian and peasant classes. But like there's a, there's a political and economic pressure there that can kind of explode. And that's why, you know, maybe Russia kind of leveled up is because their feudal aristocracy was deeply weakened by the fact that they were trying to hold on to 
um, outdated class relations during an era of uh, capitalism dominating the markets they were tra- dominating the markets they were trying to participate in. Right, and and that would lead to one of the the places where Lenin would then come to disagree with what had originally been a, a Marxist prediction right. that. Because the conception that you know Marx and Engels had developed was okay. Well, as the productive forces develop, that eventually you know they just get exhausted, they start to become a fetter, and so the most advanced of these societies will be where revolutions start to take place. But and and I know you're going to get into this with the anarchist stuff, and when we can and when we get into Gramsci, this will kind of get into that. But then when you know Lenin actually went through and had a successful socialist revolution in a country that was very much not an advanced capitalist power. It was, you know, from the, the stages conception far behind, especially like England. Mm-hmm. And, and so that led him to reconsider that those predictions and, and started to develop what is, you know, usually referred to as the, the weakest link in the chain theory. Right. Basically exactly what you're saying is when you have a society that is, is, is holding on to an older mode of production that can lead to openings. And, and I mm-hmm. think, you know, we've seen that in examples. I think the people's Republic of China and it's, its revolution is is another great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, to continue with with Lenin's analysis, he's he's going into more stuff about you know the problems with the the uh, common portrayal of bourgeois societies as democratic. Is it, well, to decide once every few years which members of the ruling class is to repress and crush the people through parliament. This is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarianism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies but also in the most democratic republics. And that is really getting at the, that, that's the revolution part of the right. state and revolution. Because, you know, the bourgeois parliamentarianism, this idea that, hey, you know, it's a democracy. If you don't like the state, organize and, and vote to change it. But that's not, like, that's a myth. That is, that is a specifically constructed ideology designed to get your consent to, as, as he says, to vote for which members of the ruling class are to repress you. Right, exactly. I mean, and, uh, you know, as an American, this should hit home with you because yeah. every two years we take up two whole years of arguing whether, you know, red man bad or blue man bad. Right. And uh, let, me, um, let me be real, red man is a better rapper than blue man, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that's the th- that's one of those the those quotes that I just I'm like this is one of the most immediately applicable I think to anybody especially in the US where it's yes. like you get to choose which group of billionaire donors gets mm-hmm. to set the priorities of our legislature for the next 2 4 6 years. Right. right. And I, I mean and I like think that one important thing to to bring up here is the fact that that we don't live in a democracy and that uh and that the only way to even get uh, approach democracy is more of a, like a communistic style um organization though through you know making decisions as a group i mean the we're gonna go i'm gonna go back to saying like the dictatorship of the proletariat is about having all like the majority of people making the decisions that are going on that is inherently democratic and 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 how our current system is literally like a cutout facade of what that could possibly be and well yeah uh, like i'm supposed to believe that the founding fathers who almost instated a monarchy in the united 
United States instead right. of what we have now and barely washed their asses uh, were somehow like <laughs> setting up a system that was going to be fair and equitable to the working peoples of the country going forward. Like they own slaves. Like we should all fucking know better. Like uh, we were not, there's no like magical liberal democracy ordained by God that finally came along and fixed the world's problems. I'm sorry, Francis Fukuyama, you can cry yourself to sleep for the rest of your life. It's fine. <laughs> well- and that's and that the reason why I brought up what I want to bring up or what I brought up is because of the 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 false notion of of communists being some sort of like authoritarian in like the the more like poli- the the more like uh what you, propaganda style sense it, because the, there is not a democracy in what we're doing here and if we're really trying to avoid quote unquote authoritarianism we need to be looking towards a democratic structure and the best way that we really have to do that is to democratize power in the workplace in the, in the um like governing apparatuses and uh, and the only way to do that is to get away from capitalism and move towards a more uh, stateless, classless, moneyless society. You know. Yeah, and so uh, one of the one of the other quotes I want to get in here is where Lenin is basically pointing out that at the time there was you know all of this discussion and campaigning from the the ruling bourgeoisie that hey look how much freer we've made society now that there isn't a monarchy there's this bourgeois parliamentary system it's an amazing democracy and so lenin talking about the way the capitalist state has changed over the past you know uh, 50 years or so at, at the time of his writing since you know marx had written capital he, he said, talks about the rise of imperialism where he says imperialism the era of bank capital the era of gigantic capitalist monopolies of the development of monopoly capitalism into state monopoly capitalism has clearly shown an unprecedented growth in its bureaucratic and military apparatus in connection with the intensification of repressive measures against the proletariat both in the monarchical and in the freest Republican countries. And really what he's hitting at there is that it's like, this is, this is a point that I would, you know, point out to because he's contrasting like de- quote unquote democratic capitalist societies with monarchies. But I think that the, where I would point this out is to compare, you know, say our form of parliamentarianism in the United right. States with what is commonly contrasted with it by progressives uh, which would be the parliamentarian systems in, in Western Europe, like people pointing out like Scandinavia and all these places. But what he's talking about here is that it's like, it's not the, you know, parliamentary form or lack thereof that is what grants democracy. It is the rule of the, <laughs> the actual rule of the majority, because as he's pointing out here, the, the, whichever form, right. as those class antagonisms develop, as workers develop consciousness and understand the necessity to band together so that they can, you know, get their, their just rewards of their labor, as those class antagonisms develop, it doesn't matter what the form of the state is. Right. They, the state will inevitably develop a bigger and more powerful repressive apparatus in response and, and you know, reinforcing the military, reinforcing the army to, to push back against the ruled class of workers who are, are trying to actually exert a real democracy. Yep. And that's, that's one of the, the things that I think, think like I'd really want to point out is because you'll see people, Oh, we just need to be more like, you know, Denmark or Germany or Scandinavia. But if you actually <laughs> go look at, you know, the relations there, yeah, sure. There are certain aspects that are somewhat better than here, but like, I mean, the, just that because comparison, I mean like what's, but that's a pretty fucking low bar. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's. I feel like uh, this is just that meme uh, where it's like how I defeated fascism with the power of love, but edited it a little bit. It's like how I defeated the bourgeoisie with the power of voting by Vladimir Lenin. <laughs> step one. The first step in my journey was realizing it is impossible to defeat the bourgeoisie with the power of love. Chapter two, the power of incredible violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and so from this understanding of what the state is on, on the understanding of the, the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and the, the use of the state apparatus to repress the workers is where Lenin really gets into, okay, so what do we need to do? How do we need to do it? And so I'm going to run through a few quotes here on, on what he's saying, where he says, the essence of Marx's theory of the state has been mastered only by those who realize that the dictatorship of a single class is necessary not only for every class society in general, not only for the proletariat which has overthrown the bourgeoisie, but also for the entire historical period that, which separates capitalism from classless society, from communism. Bourgeois states are most varied in form, but their essence is all the same. All these states, whatever their form, in the final analysis are inevitably the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. The transition from capitalism to communism is certainly bound to yield a tremendous abundance and variety of political forms, but the essence will inevitably be the same, the dictatorship of the proletariat. And to develop from there, he, he continues, the proletariat needs state power, a centralized organization of force, an organization of violence, both to crush the resistance of the exploiters and to lead the enormous mass of population, the peasants, the petty bourgeoisie and semi-proletarians in the work of organizing a socialist economy. And he carries on the logical extension from that is it is still necessary to suppress the bourgeoisie and crush their resistance. This was particularly necessary for the commune, referring to the Paris commune. And one of the reasons for its defeat was that it did not do this with sufficient determination. The organ of suppression, however, is here the majority of the population and not a minority, as was always the case under slavery, serfdom and wage slavery. Yeah. And so so that's really I mean, that's getting into kind of where we start to see the difference between, I, I think, the, the, one of the core differences between some anarchist theorization and, and the Leninist theorization, which is that during the period of socialism, which is you know referred to by the Marxist definition as the transitional period from capitalist, the capitalist mode of production we're in now to the classless statelist mode of production under communism— there will be this period of some duration, probably a very long one, uh, where we're, you're going to have to experiment with different state forms in order to actually force the bourgeoisie to give up their power. And there's a, there's a ton of people who have pointed stuff out like this, where, you know, it's like power concedes nothing without a demand. Like, the, right. you're not going to, the rich will not let you vote away their wealth, just to pull out a couple of these, these quotes from other Yeah, the people. master's tools and, will not dismantle the master's house, etc. Like. <laughs> right, and, and so his point there is that if you're going to actually, based on the actual historical experience of the commune, where they did temporarily in Paris, overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie and enact the rule of the proletariat. However, they allowed the bourgeoisie to escape. They allowed them to go, you know, get outside the and city with a lot of their resources their and reconsolidate their power and come back with a standing army and they were crushed. And so the, the lesson from that experience and also from the suppression of various other workers' protests in, in parts of the revolutions of 1848 and, and, other, and, and also, you know, workers' protests in Russia prior to 1917, including, you know, the, the 1905 revolution, 
was that there's going to have to still be a temporary period under socialism where there is still a state apparatus. There is still an organ of class rule. But as he points out in that last part of the quote, this will be an organ, an organ of class repression. But for the first time under class society, it's not the suppression of the majority by the minority. It's the suppression of the former ruling class. The, the, in, in our, you know, our time, now the, the billionaires, the, the financiers, right. the industrialists, mm-hmm. the, the 1% that, that has monopolized control of the means of production. It's the repression of the temporary repression of that group by the vast, vast majority of workers in order to ensure and consolidate the development of a society that no longer needs these class distinctions. Right, to liberate no them from their, from their bullshit status. I, right. I, I, I think that one thing it, I've said a couple times on the show, um, though I, is may, this may be a slight tangent, is the, the concept of freedom of speech, which I, I think is uh, really ties very closely in with the suppression of the, the bourgeois and... Um, and I and I really think that it's important to take like that concept and and really extend it to this argument because we're, and I always say freedom of speech doesn't exist. The ideal of it right. is not even necessarily like something that we want because for one in our current society, I mean, you don't have freedom of speech at work, you don't have right. freedom of speech in the streets, it's you don't have freedom of speech basically anywhere. But it, but on top of that, when when a lot of like more liberal leaning people would then critique uh, a state. A, so, a socialist state, uh, they would like to. They would say something like, "Oh, but they don't have freedom of speech." Well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not really interested in giving the bourgeois their freedom to say that they should keep repressing us. And I think yeah. that it's really important that we don't concede that, and or even pretend it's some sort of ideal. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that I promised myself I wouldn't bring up Sterner, and here I am doing it again. <laughs> but this dovetails nicely where I think that. Uh, Sterner's is informative here where he he talks about rights as if they're a joke because um, what he's trying to poke fun at is the idea that they come from somewhere that they're just mad they fall in your lap a right should fall in my lap but uh, he he makes a distinction or rather he plays with the distinction between rights as a property of you something that is intrinsic to you and being your property something that you have and that is to say that like rights are not just given to you they're not granted you have to go out and take them uh you know and you see this a little bit when he says like the workers have the most enormous power in their hands if only they were to put down the tools of labor and regard the product of it as theirs uh all hope for the bourgeoisie would be lost or something like that i'm paraphrasing and he also, um, you know, he's playing with the difference between a property as like a possession and a property as an attribute. And he's saying like, these are not different. You have to go out and take them from the people who are trying to take them from you. And I think Lenin has a really, really clear understanding of this, has a really materialist understanding of this, because he's saying like, we can't just like assume that if we if we go about with good hearts and we engage in our civic duties and such that like our rights will be honored and granted like no there are people who have proven to you through your labor exploitation at least that they intend to routinely take like disempower you of these rights and of these of these benefits and it's only through the organized collective suppression of that class of people that you're ever going to get those back or really get them in the first place yeah and i mean just to to bring in some like historical examples from the u.s 
like when they're you, you can go back to like the 30s when there was you know a pretty developed communist party and a couple developed socialist party mm-hmm. and there were actually elected socialists members of congress and and members of several state legislatures and what did a lot of these legislative bodies do they just refused to seat them there's like nah we we've right. decided that this election doesn't count <laughs> We also just saw, yeah, and we and we just saw Germany like specifically mm. reject communists and anarchists from the general assemb- their general assembly just on pr- on principle or something. I, I don't yeah. know. I didn't actually read that. Apropos close, of nothing, well, but... I I do think that the there are communist and anarchist groups in Germany that have been making a lot of political headway recently. Um, I'm I'm fuzzy on the details, but this could easily be a response to that. And like you know. What is McCarthyism in Germany if yeah, not just, like, just how, the yeah. Nazism that the McCarthyism was based on in the right. first place? Like, how is yeah. it that they can pull that? I was just like, oh no, Germany is anti-communist, and if you like read history, you're just like, huh? Yeah, I guess you're right. Germany pretty much has been anti-communist a lot for a long time. Yeah. Well, and and of course you don't see them doing that same suppression to the AFD, the the. I don't know. They would. It's alternative for Germany to Germany being Deutschland. Yeah, make Deutschland Germany, great again, is, basically. Yeah. Which is a yeah. It's it's a neo-fascist party. They're not being suppressed. What a surprise. Yeah. But but yeah, the the far left parties. Oh uh, well, we've uh, there we've passed a new measure that says you have to get this certain percentage of the vote. And what a surprise! It's right. just above the threshold that you made in the last election. What a quinky dink! Well, and it's like people <laughs> yeah. people get shocked when like Facebook removes a bunch of leftist pages and leaves like Golden Dawn and Proud Boys and all of right. that other shit up, even Klan pages. And it's like, uh, why should you be surprised? Like that is one hundred percent in line with the. Uh, with the class suppression that Facebook, as a as basically a governmental organization at this point, is engaged in, like, or even if you just want to think about them oh, as a yeah. capitalist entity, it doesn't matter. They both do it. Like, I'm so excited to get to to hegemony and and talk about <laughs> a talk about yeah. Amazon and Facebook as as yeah. apparatuses of the state. That's I'm so yeah. pumped for that, but that's not right now. Well, <laughs> so- I do want I do want to ask since we're at a, a kind of a good breaking point, do we want to chop this up into a few pieces because we're already well over an hour and we've only made it through Marx, yeah. Engels, and Lenin. Yeah, uh, I think we're having it. I thought it would happen is that we would run with the fossils. I would run with the fossils. I would run with the Okay, cool. All right, listeners. So we've just realized that it's going to be a while before we're done with this discussion. So we're going to split this up into a couple episodes. Uh, I think that what we're going to do is we're going to wrap this part up and get to the um, our anarchist conceptions. And then my thing that I'm very excited about, Hegemony with uh, Gramsci and Althusser, uh, maybe even on a third episode. But but for for now, we're going to we're going to do a little bit of, of wrapping up of, of this this understanding. And Dan's going to do that for us. Yeah. So, like, I just wanted to, to bring out some more examples to try and, like, reinforce like real world applications of, of what Marx, Engels and Lenin were talking about in, in the preceding quotes that I'm going through, like the the ways in which we can see that their analysis is still very much the case in, in 2021 United States. Like when you look at our government here, like both parties, donors 
have an enormous amount of overlap and they're all they're all responding to these same tiny groups of billionaires uh like and when you see like you were talking about um lena with the definition of free speech and you see all rights in the u.s especially when you look at them through like a legal lens through through the judicial system are primarily focused through the concept of property rights first, Mm -hmm. meaning that, you know, leading directly to things like Citizens United, basically declaring that the freest form of speech of all in the United States is the... is the dollar? It's it's the way to spend money to tell politicians to do what you want to al- to allow infinite political donations. One dollar is one vote, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, and it's the easiest way to to dispel any notion that there's a democracy in our country is the the way that there it is one dollar one vote, and that it, it and even more that just does outline that we live in the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. There, right. if only if you're if you get more votes by being rich, then you have that is the divine right of kings manifested in our modern capitalist society. These people well, who are rich are the modern ruling like royalty that exists i mean i know that they're generally compared a little bit more to the clergy um but i i still think that they 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 really invoke that divine right of kings kind of um mentality a lot more than than people than capitalists would like to to um admit well and i think when you have an an understanding of these kind of political phenomena informed by thinkers like marx engels and lenin it lets you look at something like citizens united which is commonly understood as like this is one of the things that's breaking america this is one of the worst things we could have done this is sending us down the shitter and it's like this is an emergent feature of the system that has been ruling the country for a long time. Like it is absolutely not the source of the issue. It is a symptom. It like you're, you're kind of on the right track, but like you have to, if you look at it structurally, citizens United was fucking inevitable. It was really just the ruling class clarifying that it's okay to do something that they already do. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's like all of that is simply following the logic of capital and, Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the specifically again in the the judicial field, in the legal realm, and this is one that people bring up all the time. And I think because I think it's one of the most clear and stark examples of the state as an organ of class rule is when you look at and we we've talked about this on the show. What is the difference between the way that our legal system treats a worker who is you know starving and you know or just needs money and because we're not paid shit and they steal a hundred dollars from a tiller they shoplift because you know we've been seeing all sorts of these fucking scaremongering stories about how shoplifting is on the rise and it's going to destroy our (laughs) insane gigantic corporation somehow yeah uh oh walmart's gonna go down the tubes because i stole a couple of slim jims my god right and and so you see how somebody who does that is treated and maybe locked up for decades. I mean, there's story after story, especially of, you know, black and brown folks in this country. And that's a whole nother level of, you know, when you add like the way that racism is used to divide people. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see people, it's like, oh, they stole $20 and they got 15 years in prison. And then you compare that to how wage theft is treated, which is the, ex- I mean, you'd think... Well, there's one person is stealing money from a business. The other one is an employer stealing money from his employees. And yet, at worst, somebody might get a fine. But the oh, vast yeah. majority of the time, 
No. Nothing happens to them at all. And any and any whistleblowers in those situations get fired because of at-will employment. I mean, I literally, that was one of the reasons I got fired from Starbucks was because I was trying to stop some of the wage theft that was going on by them for, not forcing people to work off the clock, but always cutting hours, making it seem like it was the responsibility of some of the workers to fill in the gaps and, and then to not, and then just to not say anything. It's like, oh, if you ended up I just wasn't paying attention that you were working, and that's what they would always do. And there was tons of wage theft going on. Starbucks is a shit company, uh, but but also, yeah, I, I would put people on the books for those hours, and then I got in trouble. Although they're like, "Oh, it's good that you're following the law," but what you need to do is you need to kick them out of the store. You need to forcibly remove them, and and just like that—that that is how capital deals with those situations. I mean, if any, if you stick up for people's rights, and I mean. Unfortunately, I was kind of alone in those situations, which made it unsafe, which is also why I got fired. Uh, you know, th- mm-hmm. that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. And and to continue with, um, like, you know, some of the other ways that our, our current society reflects Lenin's analysis, he and, and Marx and Engels really focus in on the army and the police as, as really some of the primary direct arms of the way the state enforces its power. And obviously... <laughs> Like we we've seen that I, I think that people did a great job last year, although of course the media tried to suppress this, but talking about how the police exist to serve property relations. They exist right. to suppress workers' movements, to break strikes, to they they started out in this country specifically as slave patrols to bring back quote unquote stolen property right. to the ruling class in the South of the, of the slave owners. And, and we see even, you know, like the national guard getting called in because people are protesting about, you know, unarmed black folks getting murdered at an insane rate by the police. Whereas, you know, you will have billionaires and rich folks committing crimes all the time, but you never see the police or the army getting called in to, you know, stop, horrific labor abuses to to stop you know like a workplace environment that is killing its employees seneca farms yeah exactly you you don't have the police coming in to stop companies from forcing employees to work in unsafe conditions during covid to stop you know frito-lay from making people work 84 hour weeks and letting people die on the line and then doing nothing about it that you never see the repressive state apparatus oh no they don't show up they don't show up at the all of the agricultural you know locations where it's dominantly immigrant workers to do anything about their rights that are being trampled they don't show up at the fucking meat packing plants they don't show up anywhere because those people have contracts that make the people who are in charge of the police a lot of money yeah. and uh and they they're an organ the police, of class repression quote, unquote, unions they 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 donate yeah. to the fraternal order of police and they and so they get their that's their protection money and and the bourgeois definitely pay their protection money yeah yeah absolutely and, and in the same vein like you can look at the i think again one of the clearest examples of this is you look at the prison population. Everyone knows in this society that if you have money, you don't usually get affected by our legal system. You don't go to jail. No, you the, get like, community the, service time at worst. You, you don't even have to be part of the ruling cl- class. You just have to be popular enough. I mean, look at the shit celebrities get away with just because of their right. proximity to the ruling class oh, by yeah. virtue of being popular. How many celebrities have murder like, counts but not charges? Right. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or massive drug possession yeah. busts that would have put almost any other person behind bars for the rest of their lives. You know? Yeah. And and like George Jackson, I know specifically in, in Blood in My Eye, where where he, he writes, you know, about the the conditions of being a prisoner in, in, in the you know, bourgeois fascist society that we live in, and pointing out that in addition to the obvious racial disparity where, you know, black and brown men were, are locked up far beyond the proportion of, of their, the population. And, you know, when you look at crime statistics that haven't been fucking juiced by racist cops to justify larger budgets, again, you see that there's absolutely no correlation to any of that. And it is a purely, it is a system purely designed for social control and to repress, repress the working class and specifically black and brown working people. But the other thing he points out is that the he's he's like talking about all the people that he's met in prison, all the different you know types of folks he's run into. He's never run into a rich person because yeah. again, the the whole prison population is poor or working class. Right. Well, I mean, like, I mean, shit. Just watching TV, you can kind of see this because uh, in Orange Is the New Black, they did this whole bit where like this um, who was oh, she the- supposed to be like. Paula Dean or Martha Stewart kind of character yeah, exactly. gets put into prison and she gets her own fancy cell and she has TV and a nice bed and everything. And it's like if, you know, that highlights the the distinction, but also like people who are that wealthy don't really end up in that situation. Like Martha Stewart went to jail, but let's be real. Martha Stewart didn't go to the same jail that you or I go to if we get busted for whatever, because also we don't have the we don't have the well, class stealing, status to for even stealing uh, five hundred dollars, let alone thousands and thousands and thousands. Well, right. She was an insider trader, too, which is like a crime that a lot of working class people <laughs> will never even have access to. Like you just don't even right. get the chance to be an insider trader. Yeah, could if I could, I would if I could. Would if sure. I could. What? Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 key to to like. I think it, as just to reinforce that kind of what we'd always talked about is like with all of these things, all of these issues in our society that demonstrate the the dictatorship of the ruling class, it doesn't matter which right. party's in power. If it's the, the Democrats or the Republicans, it, it, it doesn't matter. The, those facets, which are the, you know, the core of how our state operates, you know, despite whatever small differences may exist between those two parties, those core facets of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie never change completely constant and that's because this is a structural problem this is is because the state that we live in is specifically built that way it's built to enforce maintain and reproduce the rule and repression of you know the our ruling class who are the bourgeoisie and so like just to kind of sum up the stuff that i've I've talked about in this episode to get it like really to condense the key points uh, where we were starting with Marx and Engels is, is to really start and look at history with a historical materialist lens and not to assume that the current form that society is in has always been eternal, that it's always been that way, and to go and actually look at evidence and see how societies have evolved, how they've changed. And when you look at things that way, you see that we have not always had these classes. We have not always had these class antagonisms that then required these repressive bodies like the standing army and the police in order to enforce the rule of a small minority over the rest of us. And that that understanding that the, the form of the, the state as an organ of class rule has not always exist, therefore logically tells us that it does not have to exist. And that 
we can, as a as the majority, as the working class, we can overthrow that situation. And so then you take in, you know, Lenin's understanding that if what we're living under is the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and that there's no way to work within that structure because it's specifically constructed in a way to maintain those power relations, that we're going to have to smash that state and create a yeah. new one. Smash the state. <laughs> <laughs> and... And so that really hits at his, his, his understanding of the need for revolution and, and not to just be like, we can vote our way into socialism. We're going to pull the Democrats left, that sort of stuff. And to specifically focus on the construction of new power structures, a new form of the state, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and that that will not come by just simply laying hold of the existing state machinery, that that will require the construction of a new type of state from new organizations, from proletarian organizations. And he specifically talks about in his analysis that unions form a nascent cell of, of how you can look at communal relations under industrial conditions, under how you can develop democracy, and that that, specifically in the conditions of you know early 20th century Russia, led to the development of a further evolution of, of unions into Soviets, which is simply the Russian you know, word for council. Right. Basically bringing together representatives of the different workers' bodies, the different peasants' associations, and as well, different you know, soldiers' organizations to have real democracy. Democracy where it's the majority of the people, not a few billionaire donors, where it doesn't matter how much money you have. It's one person, one vote, not one dollar, one vote. And you can actually build organizations based on proletarian collective understandings and that that is how we're going to be able to build the new state for the transitional period in socialism, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's hard Cue to disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Bam. Play us out. Play us out, Vladimir. Uh <laughs> No, I mean it's really good, and uh, yeah, when we when we get to the anarchist conceptions of the state, I'm gonna highlight a lot of stuff that I think stacks neatly on top of this. But I also don't want anybody to get the idea that in doing so, in raising critiques about the state form broadly and about what it does as like a productive system, that I'm at all trying to discredit any of what we just talked about uh, on this episode. Because like honestly, this is really foundational stuff. And whether you consider yourself a Marxist or an anarchist or any other esoteric kind of anti-capitalist, it's really worth visiting and checking out and learning for yourself and drawing your own conclusions from. Um, right. I'm an, because I'm I think an you'll find it really compelling. I'm an anarcho-Maoist. It's, it's it, that was a joke like three years ago, but it's a totally reasonable <laughs> on tendency, honestly. Like... <laughs> I just yeah I just love the meme where it's like stops it's like stop saying that you're an anarcho stalinist it's redundant <laughs> Yeah that's right uh, that fucking rocks All right well on that note we really are going to close out the episode Yeah <laughs> um, so thank you all for being a patron and we are going to come back with more of this hard hitting great analysis with jokes intermingled in between uh again Thanks so much. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain and then listen to the Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table and, uh, you know, stick around. Tell tell your friends about us and uh, we'll see you next time. Uh, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity yeah. forever. That's Solidarity, right. everybody. Solidarity and revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs>
In a building of gold with riches untold Live the families in which the country was founded And the merchants of style with their vain velvet smiles were there For they also were hounded And the soft middle class crowded into the last For the building was fully surrounded And the noise outside was the ringing of revolution Sadly they stared and sank in their chairs And searched for comforting notion And the rich silver walls looked ready to fall As they shook in doubtful devotion The ice cubes would clink as they freshened their drinks Wet their minds in bitter emotion And they talked about the ringing of revolution We were hardly aware of the hardships they bed For our times taken with treasure Oh, life was a game and work was a shame And pain was prevented by pleasure The world cold and gray was so far away In distance only money could measure But their thoughts were broken by the ringing of revolution And the clouds filled the room in darkening doom As the crooked smoke rings were rising How long will it take? How can we escape? Someone asks, but no one's advising And the quivering floor responds to the roar In a shake no longer surprising As closer and closer comes the ringing of revolution So softly they moan, please leave us alone As back and forth they are pacing And they cover their ears and try not to hear With pillows of silk they're embracing The crackling crowd is laughing out loud Peeking in at the target they're chasing Now trembling inside the ringing of revolution With compromise sway we gave it half away When we saw that rebellion was a-growing Now everything's lost as they kneel by the cross Where the blood of Christ is still flowing Too late for their sorrow they've reached their tomorrow And reaped the seed they were sowing Now harvested by the ringing of revolution
In tattered tuxedos they face the new heroes and crawl about in confusion. And they sheepishly grinned for their memories were dim of the decades of dark execution. Hollow hands raised, they stood there amazed in the shattering of their illusions as the windows were smashed by the ringing of revolution. Down on our knees, we're begging you, please. We're sorry for the way you were driven. There's no need to taunt. Just take what you want, and we'll make amends if we're living. But away from the grounds, the flames told the town that only the dead are forgiven. As they vanished inside the ringing of revolution.